came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves. She sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views. Are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and each month we bring you two fabulous episodes for your listening pleasure on SoundCloud, iTunes and Spotify. One episode features Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave, who gives us his monthly sky guide for observers, accompanied by his fascinating astronomical tangent. And the other episode is a feature interview with a respected astronomer, astrophysicist, space scientist or particle physicist. We also include a community service announcement asking you to wash your hands regularly and isolate as much as possible as we work our way through this COVID-19 crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Now, today's feature interview is with an amazing young astronomer and STEM activist who is currently in Perth, Western Australia. So let's zoom over there right now and speak with Kat Ross. Hello, Kat. Hi, Brendan. Today I'm very pleased to be speaking with PhD candidate Kat Ross, who researches compact active galactic nuclei and galaxy evolution and she's an activist for women in stem and who works as a science communicator when not staring at distant baby black holes or fleeing from space poop and i'm guessing we might explain about that later or not cat is based at curtin university and icra the international center for radio astronomy research in perth western australia thanks for speaking with us cat Thank you so much for having me and uh, definitely starting out the conversation with a strong warning about space poop. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Okay, so before we talk about your fabulous astrophysics PhD research and your passion for correcting some serious deficiencies in our school science curriculum, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Kat, and tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place? So originally I'm actually from Sydney, uh, not from Perth. I moved over here for my PhD, but I grew up in Sydney with a family that very much loved the idea of science and curiosity and trying to learn things. And it's actually my fear of space poop that got me into science. As kids, we used to go out into the street, my whole family would huddle together and we'd try and find the International Space Station flying above. I really loved looking at that little spot, just a feat of 
engineering and the human endeavor to learn just this one little spot flying across. But then my parents told me that people live in the dot constantly and I could never really recover from the idea that there's people in there so there must be poop in there. So now even to this day my family will cover our head every time the ISS goes overhead to stop ourselves from being attacked by space poop. <laughs> what a great launch pad. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you're from Sydney. So Please tell us a little about those school days and your early ambitions and did those ambitions change over time? Definitely. So originally in high school, I actually wanted to get into biology and I also really loved fashion design. I was going to try and become a designer. I then started taking textiles and realised that that was definitely not the right avenue for me. And the more I learned about our universe, the more I realized that that's really a fantastic area to study. Imagine devoting your life to the universe and trying to understand what's out there. I went to an all-girls school, so I actually had a pretty small class in physics and mathematics, but they were my favorite subjects. I never really thought too much of it because I thought they might just not be very common subjects. And it was only when I got to uni, I realized they're not uncommon, it's just uncommon for people like me to take them. So it's a bit jarring, but my passion for science and for physics really just kept me driving through, I guess. And we'll hear a few echoes of that observation a bit later. So after your successful school career, you completed your BSc with a double major in mathematics and physics, including first class honours in physics. Tell us about that next part of your study trajectory and how you secured your current position as a PhD candidate at Curtin University and ICRA, please, Kat. Well, I didn't actually have the smoothest transition into my PhD. So I finished my undergraduate with an honours in physics, but I wanted to go straight to do my PhD and you need to have a first class. So I thought that I had everything that I needed. Unfortunately, I didn't manage to get a scholarship when I originally applied for a PhD at Sydney University. Uh, I was going to be working on a completely different area, not on black holes at all, but instead on galaxies as well, but with optical, not even radio telescopes. I actually started this PhD and then was told I didn't get a scholarship. And to do a PhD without financial funding is really just not possible. Yep. So I made probably the hardest decision in my life and decided to leave that PhD because it just wasn't possible for me to do it without money. I then instead worked for a research group for about a year and a half, which is where my campaign started, where my passion for being an activist for women in STEM really began. And it was only after I'd been working in this job for a couple of years that I ran into my supervisor and a project that she was offering and it just seemed perfect. So I decided to make the shift and apply to Curtin University instead of Sydney and the rest is history, as they say. Thank you. Excellent. And so you mentioned supervisors. We know that early career scientists often have great mentors and supervisors. Would you like to tell us about some of those people who've supported your career and current research directions? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my current supervisor, as I said, she's the reason I moved to Perth in the first place. So Natasha Hurley-Walker is just an incredible researcher but above that, she's also incredibly supportive to other women in STEM and 
a rising scientist as well. So having someone who's just on your side and ready to give you the boost that you need to get into a career in academic research was just perfect. So Natasha has been an incredible supervisor, but there's been many people along the way as well. When I was working for the research group at Sydney University, I had uh, two bosses called Tom Gordon and Manjula Sharma, and they were both also so supportive. They knew I was doing things outside of the job and would love to give me advice, provide as much help as they could. And it was never a let me do this for you or I can do this better, but uh, what do you need from me to make you do this better? What do you need from me so that you have the best that you can, can yep. do? Uh, which I find is the best way to be a great mentor is, is provide what the person needs from you. And at the right time. Thanks, Kat. And I mm. see you were also at the University of Sheffield for a time. Can you tell us about how that came about and what you did over at Sheffield? Yeah, it actually just came about because I wanted to try and experience as much learning from different areas as possible. And it's part of the reasons why I chose to do exchange at all. And the University of Sheffield was uh, renowned for having a great student experience. And so I thought it'd be a great way to just try and find a different groove. I worked there for a bit on a project that tried to estimate the dark matter content of galaxies, which was incredibly interesting, but I find it a little hard to work on something that we just don't know anything about. And it's really hard to grasp and fathom something that's so abstract. So I only was there for one semester and I came back and went straight back to galaxies and optical and radio instead. <laughs> Fantastic. And you also did some great work as a member of the Sydney University Physics Education Research, the supergroup. Can you tell us about that research? So the supergroup does some incredible work trying to figure out how can teachers teach students the best? What can we do as researchers to provide teachers the resources they need so our students can understand these complex topics, but also retain that information for longer? And when I started working for the supergroup, there was an introduction of a new physics syllabus in New South Wales. That physics syllabus, I think, is fantastic. It has a lot more complex ideas, uh, many more detailed physics theories. There's a lot more equations. Um, there's many more experiments. So it has a potential to be a fantastic syllabus. But my work with the supergroup was to produce the resources so that teachers could teach this really technical syllabus. So I went around teaching teachers, we ran workshops, and I created free online resources and worksheets that teachers could pass on to their students, knowing that the physics was correct, but also that the worksheets were based on educational research so that students could get the most from them. So it was really rewarding research and certainly rewarding as a job to see teachers understand the concepts and then find a passion for physics as well. Having a teacher that loves their topic is really helpful in inspiring a love for the topic in students as well. Fantastic, exactly. Okay, so that's the background. So let's do some science now and look at your PhD research itself. What questions are you aiming to answer in your PhD? Well, it's uh, already taken quite a bit of a turn. I actually started my PhD trying to look at the really young active galactic nuclei, or AGN. So at the center of galaxies, there are supermassive black holes. 
And some of these have matter accreting into it or falling into this black hole. And they shoot it out in these really energetic jets out into the space around the galaxy. But some of them are really young and quite small. And we call these peaked spectrum sources because when you look at the radio data, they kind of look like they have a peak in their radio colors. So I was looking at these baby black holes, I guess. But when I looked at them, we don't expect them to change very much. In fact, I, I say they're baby black holes, but they're still really quite large. They're about 30,000 light years across, which means wow. it takes light roughly 30,000 years to get from one side to the other. So if I'm looking at these black holes and I'm making sure that they're behaving as we expect, I really don't think that they should be changing unless I watch them for the time of around 30,000 years. My PhD is only three years, so certainly not expecting any changes in the timescale of my PhD. But I kind of just decided to do a quick check, make sure that they were behaving as we expected. And it turns out they weren't. They were doing all sorts of crazy things. And it's really the first time we've seen them do anything like this because we haven't really had the telescopes available to look at them the way that I'm looking at them. So I've done a whole new survey looking at these baby black holes to see which ones are changing and try and figure out why they're changing. And hopefully I'll have an answer at the end of my PhD. <laughs> Fantastic. My head just exploded with that. Okay. <laughs> at what stage are you up to with your research right now? You're in your second or third year? I'm just before about halfway through. So I'm in my second year at the moment, writing up my first paper and currently planning what I'm going to be doing next. So at the moment, I have a plan to go back and look at these really weird black holes that have been changing, but using a really big telescope. In fact, it's actually lots of telescopes split up across Australia and New Zealand to try and get really high resolution images of these black holes and figure out if they're varying, what part of them is changing so we can really get the fine detail structure of these sources. Amazing. Thank you. Can you tell us a bit more about these particular instruments that you're using to capture your data? Yeah. So at the moment, I'm using the Murchison Wide Field Array or the MWA, which has actually only recently come online in the last decade or so. And it's a fantastic telescope, pretty much one of a kind, because it has a really large field of view, which means it can look at thousands of galaxies in one go, but it also looks at them in lots of different radio colors, which means we can get information about what galaxies look like in radio red compared to radio blue. That actually tells us a lot of information about what stage of evolution the galaxy is at, and also what kind of mechanisms are causing that color and causing that uh, radiation to come out towards us. So I use the MWA and I look at how these sources change in the different radio colors on a timescale of about a year. That's really only possible because the MWA can survey the sky pretty quickly. Most telescopes can only look at a handful of galaxies at a time, which means when you try and look at the entire sky, it takes a very, very long time to do that. So this is really why it's the first time we've been able to do a study like this. So it's pretty exciting work. Thank you. Yeah, it sounds like it. So after you collect all your data, 
you simply analyze it and bang, your PhD's done and dusted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm joking, Kat. Can you, can you talk us through the analysis and how you refine your work as you go? Yeah, I wish it was as simple as just get the data and then bang, I've got a PhD. But sadly, there are many steps in between. So even though this data is amazing and one of a kind, that's fantastic. But it does mean that the statistics to really tease out the science from the data haven't really been invented, which means I have to do a lot of rigorous statistics to make sure that when I'm saying something is changing, I'm confident that it's the actual source or the black hole that's changing and not something to do with my instrument. Yep. So it's really difficult to make sure the errors are what you expect they are and you know how your instrument is working to be able to get the data specifically related to your source into your answers and your, your scientific conclusions. So at the moment, I'm writing up the paper that's talking about these statistics that I've written and make sure that it's clear how I've gone about the statistics so that someone else can also reproduce it. Or if there's another survey like this, they can use the same statistics and we can start to build a bit of a methodology around it. But that really is just step one. There's many more steps behind that as well. We have to look at what's causing it because we're not stamp collectors. We can't just say I've found variability. We have to look at what's causing it as well. So there's a lot of theory then where we try and figure out what could be producing the effect that we see as well. And that's the next stage of my PhD. Fantastic. Well, good luck with the rest of it. It sounds astonishing. So it might be good to mention now how in the current world, we've got a worldwide COVID-19 crisis happening. How has that impacted on your studies and your research? Astronomy is an incredibly collaborative field. A lot of the research we do can no longer be done by a single person. The era of having this lone genius create this huge development in science is really long gone, which means I'm really used to just going down the hall and talking to someone when I have a problem. And yep. it's certainly a lot harder when you can't talk to those people. The great news is there's a really big community across the world. So a lot of us already have these virtual connections established and now it's just using that more than in person. So I haven't been too badly affected. I'm very lucky that a lot of my research can be done online, but it does mean that it takes a little bit longer when you're trying to talk to someone to get that information on how to tackle a problem and you have to wait for them to respond rather than just knock on their door a little bit. It's also frustrating because now I can't have my usual bickies and tea uh, with our group of scientists. But, you know, we all have to make sacrifices, I guess. <laughs> Fantastic. And I hope you haven't got Zoom overload. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Kat. Let's get back into the science now. Can we have a little Galactic Evolution 101, please? Right now, we know there's lots of factors that influence the evolution of galaxies. Would you like to point out some of the obvious ones for new listeners and perhaps give us a glimpse of some of the more esoteric examples and some of the strange galaxies hanging out there? 
Yeah, there's a lot of really weird ones and it makes it very hard for us to classify things. Astronomers love putting things in boxes and having these nice, neat definitions, but the universe doesn't really follow the same thinking. So a lot of our boxes don't quite make sense when we actually look at the sources and galaxies themselves. For example, we have what's called late type galaxies. So those are typically associated with galaxies like our own Milky Way that's got this beautiful spiral arms. That's actually not the right term. A late type galaxy shouldn't refer to these spiral armed galaxies because that's actually the earliest stage of its lifetime. We used to think that when you look at these blob looking galaxies, they kind of just look like an egg we thought they were the early type galaxies because they hadn't yet developed these big spiral arms. So we called them the early type galaxies and the, the spiral galaxies a late type galaxy. We later realized that it's actually the other way around. These spiral galaxies haven't gone through a big merger event yet, which kind of mixes up those spiral arms and creates the egg looking galaxies. So, First of all, our definitions don't really make sense a lot of the time, and we're always learning more. But when we look at the general life cycle of a galaxy, you're starting off with the same way we have a star, these little clumps that are slowly bringing together, slowly joining because of gravity. And sometimes you have other galaxies swinging past and they drop off some matter to this galaxy, and it slowly builds and gets bigger and bigger and bigger until you're starting to get stars forming inside that galaxy as well. And we go through a starburst phase, but then there can be other events that cause more starbursting. It's all very, very confusing. I've decided to ignore all of that aspect of a galaxy evolution and instead just focus on the central black hole evolution of the galaxy. And that is much simpler. We have three main phases. We have the baby stage, the main lifetime phase, and then the remnant phase. So the baby stage is where I focus. This is where the galaxy black hole has started to get matter pouring into it, and it's being ejected out into the universe surrounding that galaxy, but it hasn't quite gotten that far yet. It's still quite small, uh, hasn't really extended to many times the size of the galaxy. But then as it grows older, these big, energetic jets from that black hole do extend much, much bigger and they come these giant mushroom clouds many times bigger than the galaxy itself, all coming from that one central black hole in the galaxy. Then as the galaxy ages more and more, less and less matter starts to come into that AGN and it could actually turn off, which means that it's no longer providing energy into those jets or into those big mushroom clouds. And that's when it goes into the remnant phase or the dead phase. It's where the AGN is now dead. It's not providing energy. And instead we get these giant clouds slowly cooling down. They're really hard to detect because they're very, very big and not very bright. So yep. often telescopes can just pass by them without noticing. And that's actually another PhD student. He works on the dead phase, I work on the baby phase, and we kind of complete the evolutionary cycle of these AGN. You paint a beautiful picture there. Thanks, Kat. <laughs> now, apart from your fantastic STEM activism, you do a wide range of outreach activities, including recent presentations and Q&A sessions on the ICRA YouTube channel. 
Tell us about your passion for outreach and why it's so important. I think outreach is not only important, but also just fun. I love talking about what I do. I'm really lucky that I get to study something so exciting as the universe. And a lot of people would really enjoy this as well. So being able to talk about what I do and see people's eyes light up as they just hear the awe of the universe is, is pretty amazing and very inspiring. But on top of that, science outreach does play a really crucial role in the science itself. It's how we inspire the next generation of scientists. I feel like as well, being a female in STEM, it's really important to make sure we get visibility on the minorities in STEM so that the next generation knows that they have those opportunities as well. I love to be a model for future females who want to get into physics as well. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I think science education is really important and having these outreach activities that shine light on the diversity within science as well. Fantastic. Now, let's talk about one of your great passions that we hinted at earlier. You've driven a great movement to boost the numbers and participation of women and girls in STEM. In particular, many of us are fans and trying to support the idea that our physics curriculum and our general science curricula in schools have huge deficiencies that need fixing urgently. Can you talk us through this work you're doing, why the work is necessary and the support you're getting and what you'd like to happen next? So this all actually started during my work with the supergroup. Uh, we were going through the physics syllabus step by step. Every single dot point was reviewed and studied. And as part of this work, a colleague pointed out to me that in radioactivity, Students don't learn about Marie Curie. She's in fact not even mentioned in the radioactivity section. Now, for those who don't know, Marie Curie invented this field. She even coined the word radiation and radioactivity. She won two Nobel Prizes in physics and chemistry for this work, but she's not included in the syllabus, which to me just seems like a huge oversight. So I decided to go through the entire physics curriculum and have a look and see who else was missing. And it turns out there's over 20 men that are mentioned over 50 times, but there is not a single female mentioned. Mm. To me, that is just a blatant error in the way we're presenting science to our students. That's not what science is about. In fact, women have made and continue to make really significant contributions to science. And in particular, astronomy. The astronomy world has so many incredible females and there has been throughout history. To not mention any of them is really just not teaching an accurate representation of how physics and astronomy was developed. So that's where I started the Include Her movement where I basically look to correct our courses so that they're mentioning women where they belong and attributing the work that they did to the women that did it. It's not really actually looking at drastically changing any of the courses, but simply putting the names in where they belong. From doing that alone across New South Wales science courses for year 11 and 12 students, you can increase the number of female scientists from under 1% to almost 40% without even changing what students learn, but just putting the name of the woman to the science that's already in there. Mm. 
Yep. So this movement really started in New South Wales, but I've gotten heaps of support online and also in person. And it's grown to a national campaign now. I also have a group of volunteers who are helping me go through all the courses throughout Australia. And I'm working with the New South Wales Education Standards Authority or NESA to actually work on correcting the courses in New South Wales to include women. So it's really grown a lot, but there's definitely still work to be done. Um, and we'll keep working until we can get uh, an accurate representation in science in Australia. Fantastic. And I'm very pleased to be one of your supporters, Kat. Thanks very much. <laughs> now, it's great to see also some of those high-powered supporters you've enlisted. And let's move on now to perhaps a related issue, imposter syndrome something that many researchers battle with all through their careers. What are your observations as an early career researcher, Kat? I actually basically got through my entire undergraduate degree and my honours degree without even hearing the term imposter syndrome. It was only really when I went to a talk by Professor Athene Donald from the UK that mentioned imposter syndrome that kind of struck a chord with me. And I realized that a lot of the things that I've been struggling with throughout my undergrad could really just be explained by this one phenomena. I actually did a lot more research and figured out what it was and all the ways that it impacts researchers. And I found that firstly, women in STEM and women in astronomy who suffer from imposter syndrome are more likely to leave the field but women and minorities are also more likely to suffer from imposter syndrome in the first time. And then it's essentially this feeling that you don't belong where you are, that you're an imposter and someone's going to find you out and kick you out of your field, which means that anytime you have a problem or anything that you're struggling with, you have to do it by yourself because you can't tell someone you're struggling or they'll realize you're not meant to be there and kick you out. Yep. So a lot of my undergraduate, I really struggled through a lot of things where I could have just asked someone for help. I was far too scared to do that. So battled through a lot of things that I didn't need to do. On top of that, there's a lot of internalized thoughts that I didn't realize were not actually real, but part of imposter syndrome. For example, every time you do well or I got a good mark, it was always because of an external factor. I had help. I was just really lucky. The exam asked a question I just happened to know about. And you can never really take on any positive feedback and realize that it's because maybe you know what you're doing. Maybe you're actually good. But anytime you get a bad mark, you're far more susceptible to not being resilient from that mark. In fact, there's also studies that show women have lower levels of self-efficacy, which is a measure of their ability to judge their ability compared to the people in their cohort and set goals and work to achieve those goals. So when you get a bad mark, your brain says that's because you don't belong here, you're bad. And it also means that you really put yourself at way below your true capabilities. This one bad mark makes you feel you're at the bottom of the class when realistically there's actually no difference between the abilities of men and women. That's been shown time and time again. So once I learned about imposter syndrome, it was something that I could just really use to explain a lot of my struggles. And it, it definitely has helped calm me. It's by no means an easy battle to fight imposter syndrome. 
But now knowing what it is, I really like to make sure that other minorities and other women in STEM are aware of this issue so that they can start this fight because fighting without realizing what you're fighting is incredibly difficult. And it's not something I want anyone to have to go through as well. Thank you very much. That's very complex. I never understood that. Now, now the mic's all yours, Kat, and you have the opportunity to give us your favorite rant or rave about one of the challenges that we face in science, in equity, in representations of the diversity, as you've mentioned, or science denialism, or science career paths, or your own passion for research, or our quest for new knowledge. The microphone's all yours. Well, I'm going to do a somewhat controversial rant. It's actually about something that happened in 2008, and there's been a long, consistent dialogue and discussion with a lot of passionate people since then. And it's about the reclassification of Pluto. Now, it may not seem like a very controversial topic at first, but it really is. And a lot of people get very heated when talking about Pluto. I personally think that in 2008, when we reclassified Pluto as a dwarf planet or a trans-Neptunian object, that was a huge step forward in science. It may not seem like it, but this was essentially scientists realizing we don't really know very much, but we also know that we don't know. So that's a really big step in science. So Pluto was actually originally accidentally found. We thought that there was something wrong with the orbit of the planets and it could only be explained if there was a ninth planet further out. So we looked to where we expected this planet to be and lo and behold, we found Pluto. So we figured all our problems were solved. Here was Pluto, the next planet, amazing. Except then we realized we'd actually just miscalculated the mass of the planets and we really didn't need a ninth planet whatsoever. That was purely coincidental that we had to find one. So amazing, we just have a ninth planet. We've solved all our problems, no need to worry. Except then we got better telescopes and we started studying Pluto in more detail. And we realized that it doesn't quite fit with the other eight planets. All the eight planets orbit in a flat plane going around the sun on basically just a piece of paper. But then Pluto is way off in a completely different direction and it orbits essentially at 60 degrees compared to everyone else. So it doesn't really fit in that sense. On top of that, we looked around Pluto and we realized there was lots of things just like Pluto way out in that weird far area beyond Neptune. So that didn't quite make sense. And we essentially realized that Pluto doesn't make sense with the planets because there's another whole area out there that we haven't explored. There's a whole new region of our solar system that we just had no idea about. And as we learn more and more about our solar system, we realize that Pluto doesn't fit in with the planets, but it is the first of a brand new class of, of objects in our solar system. So it was us realizing that if you classify Pluto as a planet, you're really missing the whole picture of our solar system. By calling it a trans-Neptunian object, we know that there's all of this stuff out there that we just haven't even learned about yet. And we're now studying those things. We sent out a satellite out to Pluto to see what is out there, what's going on in this area. And we're learning some really cool things. It's also how we found the space snowman, which I recommend looking up. 
it looks exactly like a snowman, but it's essentially this icy little asteroid way out near Pluto. Pretty cool. So I think that the reclassification of Pluto is a great step forward in science. And it also shows that we as scientists are not perfect, but there's nothing wrong with realizing we're not perfect and making a decision to improve on that. And I think that that can be applied to our gender misrepresentation and the errors in the way that we present science to students. There's nothing to say that we should expect to be perfect on the first time. That's not what science is about. But when we realize that we're not perfect, we should take the time to adjust and do the best that we can with the information that we have. We now know that our syllabus isn't perfect. We know that there is an inequity for scientists between genders and minorities. So we should really look to fix that and work towards doing better in the future. Fantastic. And we'll make our decision based on the evidence and the data, not on sentimentality. Exactly. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, Kat, now... Is there anything else that we should watch out for in the near future? What are you keeping your eye on? Mm, it's a difficult one. I was keeping my eye on Beetlejuice, which <laughs> looked like it was about to go supernova, but just never mind. It's completely fine. Nothing to see here. Yep. What I think that everyone should be looking out for at the moment is we've got some really big, amazing telescopes coming online at the moment. Even here in Australia, we have the Australian SKA Pathfinder, or ASCAP. Yep. Now, ASCAP has really high resolution, but it can also look at pretty large regions of the sky too, which means we're getting these beautiful images of radio galaxies and different sources out in our universe that we haven't been able to get before. So if you like astronomy and you like our night sky, you have a lot coming your way of incredible images and fantastic research in the radio astronomy sphere. So definitely keep an eye out for that. Fantastic. Thanks, Kat. Now, final question here, and I could be putting the cart before the horse. What do you think will be next for you in your career after you nail your PhD? I love the optimism that I'll nail my PhD. Thank you. <laughs> Very appreciated. <laughs> so after my PhD, I'm not entirely sure. As you know, I love outreach and I love communicating science, but there's something really fantastic about looking at data for the first time and seeing something that no one else in the universe has seen before. And I don't think I'm ready to give that up either. I'm hoping after my PhD, I can still work as a researcher but pair that with my love for communication and do both at the same time, because why should I have to choose? I'd just rather do it all. <laughs> Fantastic. I'll enjoy following both your careers. Well, thank you so much, almost, Dr. Kat Ross. <laughs> On behalf of our listeners, it's been really fabulous speaking with you. Thank you especially for your generosity with your time and your busy schedule. And we'll encourage all of our listeners to follow Kat on Twitter. She does fabulous posts as at astro underscore Kat Ross, all lowercase. Congratulations, good luck, and thanks, Kat. Thank you so much for having me. It's so much fun to be able to talk about my research to someone super exciting and interested with it as well. See you later. And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored and we're 
very happy to recommend that you can always get the latest and best space news from Rami Mandau at spaceaustralia.com. And another great astro podcast is The Scientists with Kirsten Banks and Dr. Ankel Lopez-Sanchez. And for observers and astrophotographers, always check out Dr. Ian Musgrave's Astro Blogger website. Next month, we interview Dr. Joe Kellingham and his amazing discovery of RPEP. Till then, take care, look after yourself and your loved ones. Radio Wave.